The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. His first love was the piano. He spent 10 years on the road playing keyboard in a rock band, touring in a beat-up van. Along the way, he met so many musicians who couldn't find an audience that he invented a way to bring the audience to them. In 2000, he created the Music Genome Project, what's now a gigantic musical database curated by real human listeners that aims to predict what you want to hear. You know it as Pandora. Today, more than 80 million people tune in every month to listen to millions of songs on over 7 billion Pandora stations. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, Pandora founder Tim Westergren. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Us. It's so great to have you. What's on your Pandora playlist these days? The sort of center of my musical bullseye is an artist named Ben Folds. So, piano player, a great songwriter. On his station, I find lots of other artists that I like, so he's kind of big font of discovery. But I have jazz, punk, folk, uh, country. I was very happy to find the Frozen station, the Let It Go station, the Toddler <laughs> radio station. Uh, those are um, favorites popular. in our house. Yeah. yeah. When did you discover your own sort of musical talent? Well, I began playing piano when I was about seven. So I was living in France, actually, at the time, and uh, learned just enough about sort of chord structures and improvisation to, to allow me to kind of get around the keyboard. And after that, I just kind of fell in love with it. After I graduated, I spent the first four or five years after school uh, playing piano eight or nine hours a day. Where did you play? Uh, in my living room. But how did you support yourself? I mean, I know you, you played at a Holiday Inn. Yeah, I, was a, I did a bunch of gigs I like to forget, but um, I was a nanny. That was my job after college for about five years. I took care of kids. So my life was piano all morning, afternoon with kids, and then come back home and play piano until I went to bed. Taking care of kids was a good uh, preparation for managing a rock band. <laughs> so it did come in handy. Because that came next. You actually went on the road. That's right. So we're on, on the road a ton. And you know, got to see the kind of, this whole world, this invisible world of working musicians for a long time. What was the band called? It's called Yellowwood Junction. At what point did you say, okay, this isn't gonna pay the bills? That was kind of a steady reality throughout <laughs> that time, but ultimately film composing, that was the next chapter of my musical career. So you went to Hollywood, another place that's really easy to make it. <laughs> <laughs> I essentially began trying to compose for anything I could get my hands on. So it might be a student short film, uh, could be a commercial, and was actually getting ready to move to LA and kind of jump in wholeheartedly when the idea for this company popped into my head. What was the light bulb moment? I read an article in a newspaper. Uh, it was an article about Amy Mann, a singer-songwriter. Had a sizable audience, but the audience wasn't quite big enough for her to warrant the attention of a major. And so she was kind of in this no man's land. It was sort of one all these hundreds of musicians that I'd known, you know, all living in obscurity, and how much talent there was that nobody knew about. And then in my work as a film composer, one thing I'd really learned to do was to understand someone's taste. And I, I did that by essentially get, putting them through a musical interview where I would play songs for them. And based on their sort of 
thumbs up, thumbs down, or their reactions to what I played for them, I'd kind of home in on their taste or what they wanted for their movie. Really, literally, I thought, boy, at that moment, what if I could codify that and then build a discovery tool? So that was the beginning, the seed that became the Music Genome Project. Exactly. Which is sort of a part human, part algorithm way to figure out what people want That's to listen right. to. Tell us how it works. What we've done since 2000, we built this 450 attribute musical taxonomy, which is essentially every dimension of melody and harmony and rhythm and form. It's kind of like musical DNA. And we've had musicians, trained musicians, analyze songs one at a time and score them attribute by attribute to sort of capture the, the equivalent of a musical fingerprint for every song. What are they asking themselves? How happy is this? How emotional is this? How much bass is there? It's meant to be very objective. They get, they get trained very extensively before oh. they start this. You pitched this idea 348 times before an investor said, I want to put my money on that. Yeah, it took me 348 venture pitches to get our second round, which we didn't get till 04. And during those couple of years, about 50 people worked without getting paid. It was a pretty, wow. yeah, it was a pretty uh, tough time. 50 people worked without getting paid for two full years? Yeah, a little over two years. I do think that everyone believed that the idea was really powerful. It was also an interesting time because this was the height of Napster and a lot of trauma in the music industry. The likelihood of our company having survived is really infinitesimally small. You know, the music industry at that time was, yeah, a lot of people thought it was literally going to disappear. Well, we were technically bankrupt that whole time, for sure. Um, I maxed out 11 credit cards by the end of that, 03, uh, and owed, God knows, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to people. And it was pretty frightening. How many times did you think about giving up? I actually never thought about giving up. That wasn't an option for me. I was gonna go down with the ship. It wasn't until 05 that we actually, essentially took a left-hand turn and repurposed the Music Genome Project into something different, you know, into what we called one-click custom radio which we launched in the fall of 05. And it took off like a rocket ship. We have certainly had some near-death experiences since then, but we've really had those two big chapters to this company, sort of pre-Pandora and post-Pandora. Right. And here we are now, the 10-year anniversary of yeah, Pandora, what right. Savage Beast Technologies became. We had the idea that we'd be ad-supported. Actually, initially, we thought we'd be a subscription business, but that was very short-lived, because clearly consumers didn't accept that. But when we grew, uh, we, our idea was to be ad-supported. And so it was kind of touch and go for a long, long time. And last year was our first profitable year, as a matter of fact. You went public in, yeah. in 2011. Right, yeah. And I was proud of that. I mean, it's a marker. Not that many companies get to go public, you know. How unlikely it was was not lost on me that day, you know. Actually, I, that never, is never far from my mind. But that was quite a moment, and I think everybody was really proud of it. So what do you do now at Pandora? Well, I wear a lot of hats. Uh, I do a lot of evangelizing for the company, and, and we have many audiences. So certainly our employees, our listeners, advertisers, um, the music industry, uh, Capitol Hill occasionally too, because we are we do operate under sort of federal copyright mm -hmm. legislation, so that's an important arena for us. What is the future of Pandora as you see it? The majority of the stuff we play is music that has never played on radio before. So we know a lot about every listener and we can communicate with them. And we're actually in the process of putting those tools in the hands of musicians. And the goal in the long run is really for Pandora to be not only a great place for people to listen to music, but a great place for artists to go and commune with their fans, connect with them. Pandora will eventually give you the ability to you know, pull out your smartphone, 
log into your Pandora account, zoom into Pan to Portland, and see how many people there have thumbed up your music or created a station with your artist name. Send them a little 15 second audio message saying, hey, this is Tim from so-and-so. We'll be playing a show tomorrow night in Portland. Tap the banner to RSVP. And Pandora is doing more to give artists uh, some power. You guys are uh giving them the opportunity to, to, to send messages to their fans, you're giving them access to data. We actually um, surfaced the first part of this, what will be a long uh, set of features, uh, we call Pandora AMP, the artist marketing platform, where now any artist on Pandora can claim their identity and then be able to log into Pandora and have access to all of their data. So see all the songs that are spinning, the thumbing, see a heat map, so their audience plotted on a map of the country where the thumb uppers are, so they can you know how to target their touring. The next step, which we've now begun piloting, is to allow them to start sending messages to them. Do they have to pay for it, or is no, it something totally that's free. free? We have a very, very active uh, pipeline with the music industry. There's two or three concerts a week in our Pandora offices, the band's coming through, and we, we take advantage of when a band visits to show them all their data. There are 12,000 artists on Pandora that have at least 350,000 unique listeners that have created a station using their name. Of those 12,000 artists, 80% have never played on radio before, ever. So Aloe Black, who wrote and sang the song Wake Me Up, he claims it was the 13th most streamed song on Pandora in 2014, more than 168 million streams in the United States, but that yielded only $12,359 in Pandora royalties, which works out to nine thousandths of a cent per stream or $90 for every million streams. Is that accurate? Is that ballpark? Well, I can't do the math in my head, I'm, uh, so I can't answer that. I'm sure it's ballpark, correct? But $12,000, if, if that's anywhere near ballpark, it just doesn't sound fair at all. I th well, so one thing to remember, too, is people talk about spins on radio. Oh. A spin on a broadcast station is a spin that goes out to hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. But before I answer, let me just put a little context, which I think is really important, because this topic is obviously a heated topic, and, and I think it suffers from a lot of misperceptions. So the first thing is, so Pandora pays about half of its revenue in royalties. So about 1.2 billion to date. We did 450 million last year. The bulk of that royalty goes to the performer. A much smaller portion goes to the songwriter, which is what that quote refers to. That ratio is not set by us. That's actually a, a subject of law that predates Pandora. That's an industry question. How should that uh, money be divided up? The second thing is Pandora is the highest paying form of radio. So we pay more than any other form of radio, and we pay not only the, the composer, but the performer. Broadcast radio, which is a much bigger industry, does not pay the performer anything at all. And so really the elephant in the room with this conversation, actually is why is it that you've got this industry that's many, many times the size that does not pay performers where we pay substantially? I think that's got to get worked out over time. So who should be paying? I think all streaming radio should pay both uh, composers and performers, absolutely. So who does that apply to? Well, it applies to every business streaming online, radio, online, offline. I mean, those businesses should be sharing their stake with artists. Actually, I think the, the revenue coming from Pandora is being, I think, very fairly shared with the business. Do you think artists should be paid more? I mean, you're an artist yourself. I think the way we're sharing it is very equitable. So Taylor Swift pulled her, mu pulled her music off Spotify. Why didn't Taylor Swift pull her music off Pandora? 
Well, she can't actually. So we're under a compulsory license, means artists can't actually pull their music off of Pandora. And I think for her and a lot of other artists, what they're really responding to is a lack of transparency. So they see and read about the economics of these businesses, and they don't see that reflected in the royalty statement. And what happens in the middle there is a black box. And I think that's happening more and more. I think Tidal was triggered by that same thing. So, but you have to think people like Taylor and Jay-Z have the best lawyers, the best people out there saying, this is how you break it down. Well, Spotify is not making enough money for you. And, and I think it's certainly true that some artists, by virtue of their popularity uh, and scale, have the ability to, I think, command more and, and set the terms more. That's not true of the vast majority of artists. Is your music on Pandora? It is, yeah. Is there a Tim Westergren station? No, it's called Yellowwood Junction. Yellowwood Junction, okay, everybody. <laughs> Yellowwood Junction. The quest for the perfect playlist now includes Spotify, iTunes Radio, Beats, RDO, iHeartRadio, Google Music, Amazon Music, <laughs> Tidal now. Yeah. How do you think about who's my competition and who am I? So anybody that has a radio product, uh, Broadcast Radio is obviously the largest uh, competitor. iTunes Radio, when it came out, definitely direct competitor. And so when we think about sort of our own future, it's really about how do we, how, how do we remain the best playlist building business around? And I think so far the numbers bear it out. You know, we keep growing in spite of all this competition. So SiriusXM, is that a competitor? Absolutely, yeah. Apple buying Beats. Is that something that you think about? Yeah, of course. What I always think with Apple goes is never underestimate. Never, never think you know what they're doing. <laughs> it's a very smart company. So Beats Music will be retooled and relaunched presumably, this yeah. summer, presumably. Maybe a new name. Mm. How worried are you about that? Well, you know, we, haven't, we actually haven't lacked for competition for a long time. And, and what I've learned, I keep learning this year, year after year, is building a great playlist is fantastically hard to do. And so we've, we find over time more and more confidence in the differentiation we have. You know. Did you ever meet Steve Jobs? Yeah, I did. Did you talk to him about the future of music? <laughs> no, we said two words to each other. We, we had the great honor of being on stage in Cupertino when they uh, announced multitasking on the iPhone and they wanted Pandora highlighted. So um, myself and our then CTO, Tom Conrad, got to give a three or four minute presentation. Tom and I spent a week in a room rehearsing a three minute presentation. And we were kept under lock and key and escorted in and out of the building. And we had to rehearse the talk uh, many, many times for a successively smaller and smaller group of executives until the final thumbs up. Uh, and then he did say good job after our presentation, so <laughs> I take that as great praise. There's been always kind of simmering talk about Apple and Pandora. Why doesn't Apple buy Pandora? Maybe Apple tried to buy Pandora. Is any of that true? Well, we don't comment on stuff like that, of course. Um, but, you know, I, I look at them as just an incredible partner. It makes sense they have radio products and things that would, be, would compete with us, but you know, stepping back, they've sort of invented this field that we benefit from. Spotify just raised $400 million at an $8.5 <laughs> billion valuation. That's more than twice Pandora's market cap. Uh, they're more focused on subscriptions. Pandora's mm. more focused on ads. How do you think about that comparison? We stick to our knitting. You know, having been in this business for a long time, you know, it's an exciting business. There's lots of drama and, and interesting news. And I've always found the best thing we can do is just stay focused on what we do. We have figured out how to monetize internet radio, which no one else has. We've also built a, a huge national sales force. So we have hundreds of sellers in you know, 50 markets around the country who are now penetrated into local advertising. And in the long run, 
that kind of uh, foundation is how you build a really big business over the years. Do you think people aren't gonna, don't want to pay for music? No, you know, no. Are they I, not going to want to pay I for music? I think people will, absolutely. Mm -hmm. There will always be a large number of people who want to listen to music without advertising and are willing to subsidize that. And I think there will be a large, even larger audience that will pay to transact with an artist to whom they feel connected. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great opportunities Pandora can unlock. Spotify sort of, it started abroad. It's in 50 countries. Pandora is in, in three countries, right? The US, yeah. Australia, and New Zealand. Is that something that you think you'll figure out? Or this, yeah, is, this is how your business is going to be? No, I think international is inevitable. It's not a question of if, it's when. And for us, it's really a matter of finding the right licensing answer. In the next era, will artists be negotiating directly with streaming services? We'd be happy to, and we've done d direct deals. I think the key with a direct deal is, do both sides understand the value the other brings? It just seems like Tidal, Apple, Spotify, they get the buzz. Does it affect the business? The stock is down from you know highs, highs over the summer. We're like the little engine um, that could, and we've been through a lot of ups and downs. And I think that's become part of our DNA as a culture. We're a modest company. Uh, we actually, we, we treasure humility. It's actually a company principle. You know, I don't know, there's been 25 Pandora killers that I can count, you know. I don't get frustrated by who has the limelight at any given moment. That's not important. Will Pandora ever offer, you know, live traffic and weather, sports on Pandora? Yeah, we've talked about the sort of non-music part, part uh, talk, weather, sports, news. I think that'll eventually find a home on Pandora. And, really? and, and the thing for us is how do you do that in a way that's sort of elegantly integrated with the music experience? But it would be nice to be listening to your station and get on the hour, you know, Bloomberg TV. Right. Or on the hour, geographically targeted sports or news. Um, so eventually, right now we're focused on music, uh, but I think that will come sometime. What about podcasts? Again, another interesting uh, category for us. And we have comedy, so we do have some non-music content. I think what we'd like to do to that is bring our own twist to it. How do we help that be easily navigable, for example? And how do we bring intelligence to that sort of curation uh, approach? But could easily imagine that on Pandora someday. What about music videos on Pandora? Will that happen? Again, I think it's an interesting thing to consider. Um, one challenge is, as a fraction of our catalog, a very small number have quality music videos. Hopefully that will change over time. But you can certainly see potentially elegant ways to give someone that little, oh, I want, I want to snack on some video right now and do it on Pandora, absolutely. We've got a presidential race happening. You know, I know you guys are trying to add lo NAB local and national ad dollars. What's your pitch to advertisers right now? Our political advertising business has grown exponentially over these years. In some ways, it's tailor-made for it because we can geographically target messaging. We can do it through audio messages, video messages. So I anticipate that'll grow and grow. And one of the amazing things about data, we can predict based on your zip code and the style of music you're listening to, your political affiliation with a 90% accuracy. Really? Yeah. So who are the Democratic uh, artists and the Republican artists? <laughs> One thing I've learned about music, it's, it defies stereotypes. So I'm always loath to make them. Um, but apparently the data is very powerful and predictive. Are you playing music anymore? Uh, I went cold turkey for a while when I found the company because I, I didn't have time to do anything. I kind of needed a break too. So it was years when I was away from the piano. And I've had the itch for a while and now I'm back into it. So. What's next for Tim Westergren? I really want to get back into um, composing, which is my real passion. And then I would really like to see Pandora as a platform 
to, to, have, to, to, to sort of have a positive social impact. Pandora in 10 years, where will it be? Well, it'll be global for one. And you know, the billions of people on it. I think it will also uh, change what it means to be a musician. And I remember in my early 30s thinking, gosh, I feel so much pressure to quit music and go get a job because I wasn't making enough money. And I know a lot of musicians who went through that, the vast majority do. And that's a huge loss for society because artists don't get to keep making their art. And it's true of all forms of art. Now, what if music was a much more stable career that maybe tens of thousands of musicians could make a living in, not just a few hundred? Um, maybe it would literally change the place of music in culture. And that's what I think we can affect. We'll check back with you in a decade. <laughs> Sounds good. I guess. Tim Westergren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank it's you. It's been great to have you. you bet. Thank you. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.